So guys, Living Hope Church is celebrating our 15 year anniversary today and I'm going to do something unusual and bold and risky. I'm going to preach a 15 point sermon to celebrate 15 years and it's all going to come from John chapter 8. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a couple verses now and then we're going to take a few more blocks later. But don't worry, don't worry, we're not 100 years old so it's going to be okay. Alright? And don't worry, you might say, well, what in the world have I got myself to Well, that's okay, you'll get at least one point probably that'll hit you where you are. So don't worry about that. I got you, covered, okay, 15 points. Let's read together from God's Word in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32 to start out our time. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, refer to verse 30 to see that many believed in Him, He said, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. You may be seated. Fifteen reasons we're rejoicing today in the freedom of Christ because we're 15 years old. And the first reason I'm rejoicing is because we don't resort rigidly to just the truth alone as a church. But we rejoice in the relationship of grace and truth. You hear this phrase often in the world today, but you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it sounds noble and powerful, it's quotable, it's stirring. We hear it in other forms, like education is power, or like the College of Charleston, South Carolina's motto, sapienta ipsa libertas. Deep, right? I didn't know what it meant either. But it means knowledge itself is liberty. There's a problem, though, with simply saying that the truth will set you free, period, no context. Or that knowledge is power, or that knowledge is freedom. There's a problem. Because I've known some very smart people who knew a lot of information and they used that knowledge for very terrible ends. Some very knowledgeable people do some very bad things in our world today. I've known people who even weaponized Christian truth to shame or abuse other people and exalt themselves. Truth alone can be cold, calculating, Sterile, selfish. But truth has a name, according to John chapter 8. And John chapter 1 has told us that truth became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh. God became a human. And this human, speaking to Jewish brothers and sisters at the feast in Jerusalem, said, If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth has a name. It's personal. It's particular. It's unpopular. It's not politically correct to say that the truth that sets you free is connected to one person, namely Jesus, and that you must abide in his words and follow him to have true freedom. Not very popular. But Jesus has called us not just to proclaim the truth, but to embody it like he did, to warmly walk the talk. To show the world through grace and relationship that this is real. That he is true. And so for 15 years, we've been setting a course to seek a balance between holding firmly to the truth, and I hope that we've done that well by God's grace, and also weaving throughout that belief and that truth, grace and patience and love. So I rejoice. Secondly, that true freedom is 
for those who trust over time in Christ's word. That's called abiding. He says, if you abide in my word, that, I would just say that's called trusting over time. Or you could say it's making your home in the word of Christ. Or you could say it's making room in your heart so that Christ's word finds a place in you that's hospitable and welcoming. Do you welcome the word of Jesus? Do you find your safety and your protection in it? Abiding is making your home with Christ. It's John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine. I have life in me. And if you are the branches connected to me, the life will flow from me into you. That's union. That's abiding. The Bible also describes the relationship of a husband and wife as two people becoming one flesh, abiding together in love. When I first married my wife, she said, you know what, I don't really feel the need anymore to go out dancing with my friends. I thought, well, that's nice. <laughs> that's good for me. That's good news. It means you'll be home more often, and I don't really dance that well. So <laughs> I started dancing. I was like, my baby is going to be staying home with me. Hallelujah. She ain't going clubbing anymore. That's awesome news. That's abiding. I'm here with you, home, forever, locked in, committed, lifelong, abiding, Abiding means trusting over time, holding on to, in faith, the word of Jesus. And Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will lead you into truth. Or as Augustine, the ancient Christian, said, you have to believe in order to understand. It's not just that God gives you all the information up front and says, okay, you can critique me, you can examine me, you can stay at a distance, you can dissect the word, and you can then say, I don't believe. You have to enter in at some point into trusting in a relationship for the truth to begin to really flow and really make sense. Scientists don't get all their evidence up front, do they? When you join a lab, do they say, well, here's all the information you'll ever need to know. Now, go do great things. No, you're testing, you're experimenting, but you're in there, you're committed, you're an employee, you are putting in many hours, right? Hello? Anybody in the lab for many hours? And you're discovering new truth as you go. The CIA doesn't get all their intel up front and then say, we're not going to act on anything in terms of domestic security or homeland security until we have everything figured out, right? Some mistakes are made sometimes like that. But with Christ, he says, you can trust me. If you enter into a relationship of abiding in trust, I will show you more and more truth, and you will experience more and more freedom. At Living Hope, we've been abiding together in the freedom of Jesus for 15 years. Rooted, established, and confirmed in the truth and in Christ's love. There are conflicts that happen. We have disagreements. But this teaches us to abide with each other, to stick it out, to work it out. There's pain, but instead of running away from people that are hurting, we abide with each other. We lean on each other. We help each other. When there's joy, we share that joy. And you know what they say, joy shared is joy doubled. Abiding. Like Psalm 1. Happy is the man, joyful is the man or woman who meditates day and night on the Word of God. And he, he puts down roots and finds underground streams so that he might bear fruit in season. That's abiding, that's camping out, digging deep into God's Word and sticking it out and trusting over time and freedom will come, fruit will come, happiness will come. Freedom is not just packing up and leaving if you disagree with someone or something. But it's, it's being a rooted system of 
roots underground that you can't even see. It's the Holy Spirit connecting us and uniting us together so that when the storms come, we will not blow over or be uprooted. And, and like the psalmist also says, you will not be like the chaff that the wind blows away or a.k.a. the tumbleweed or a.k.a. the garbage blowing down Cottage Grove in the cold wintertime. You will be rooted and established, abiding and free. The third thing that I rejoice in about this text is that well, I'm going to have to read the next few verses to to find out. So, verses 33 through 36. If you wouldn't mind, let's stand together each time I read, just to keep the blood flowing, to keep you paying attention. Trust me, this will not be an hour-long sermon, I promise, okay? Verses 33 to 36. The Jews answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, you may be seated. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. If you, if you do sin habitually, if you practice sin, if you commit sin over and over, Jesus says, you're proving yourself to be what you really are. You're a slave to sin. I mean, there's really no other way to get around it. If you say, I'm not a slave to sin, I would just say, well, then stop sinning and prove it. Kind of hard to do. And not only does it prove that you're a slave to sin when you practice sin habitually, but you're actually reinforcing the slavery. You're making the chain stronger. You're adding more time to your sentence the more you sin. You realize that, right? It's not a good cycle to be in. The more you sin, the more enslaved you are to it. And Jesus says, you have no confidence when that's your pattern. You have no confidence that you'll be abiding in the house of God because the slave doesn't stay there forever. The slave comes and goes. The slave is dispensable. The slave isn't sure of his or her status. When you're jealous of people, bitter about life, when you're blaming everyone else, when you have a victim's mentality, there's no stability there. That's a slave mentality. We sang this morning, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Slaves are afraid. At our uh, HopeWorks banquet on Thursday night, our annual fundraiser, we had a speaker that used to be a Chicago Bears uh, kicker, and Bob Thomas is his name. He told a story about being in a um, a setting where he was sharing the gospel with a man, and the man was homeless, had no job, no car, no house, no money. And he said, would you believe in Jesus and get the freedom in him? And, and the man said, I can't, because I don't want to give up the freedom that I have. I want to give up the freedom that I have. What Freedom for what? You don't have any material goods in the world to your name. But often, as we think about our own slavery to sin, we, we must admit where is it getting us? What's freedom really buying us in the world's economy? Or much less spiritually, in God's economy? Our version of freedom is, I don't want to give up my freedom. Because I don't trust God. I'm afraid of what he might do. I'm afraid of what other people might do. Freedom, though, in, in Christ's estimation, is if you trust me and abide in me, I will truly set you free. You will be truly free indeed, and you'll have a place. You'll have security in the house of God, in the family of God. You guys know what the Emancipation Proclamation is, right? Abraham Lincoln declared it during the Civil War that slaves would be free. It was more of a military order. But did you know that many slaves in many states were not legally free because of that Emancipation Proclamation? It wasn't until the end of the Civil War when slavery was actually abolished or ended even then, many slaves who were technically free died of starvation, disease. There weren't many options for them. 
There, weren't, there wasn't a social system waiting to, to pick up where they had left off and, and fill in the, the, gra- the, cap, the gaps and the cracks. Jesus says, though, if I set you free, if I open the doors and emancipate you, if I liberate you, you're truly free. I'm going to give you the resources, I'm going to give you the grace and the love and the relationships and the church that you need. And as we sing in that song, Christ Alone, as he stands in victory, sins, curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is freedom. We've witnessed many people over the past 15 years at Living Hope set free from selfishness and addiction and depression and lust and laziness. Now saying that sounds really good. It makes it sound like we've all arrived, but we haven't. We're still struggling. There's still sin. The fact is, though, even though we still sin, we have to believe what Jesus has done. The chains are really broken. He really has purchased us with his own life. He's traded places with us. We are no longer slaves. We're no longer prisoners. We're no longer under God's condemnation. We don't have to carry around our sins anymore, but we often choose to, don't we? We've died to sin, the Bible tells us, and it tells us to stop carrying around the corpse. Dump it in a body bag and move on in freedom. That's what the Bible's teaching us about our sin. You're dead to it. It's dead to you. The fourth thing that I rejoice in from this text, and as I look at our 15 years, is that we have here some of Jesus' hardest words, but we've learned this lesson that some of Jesus' hardest words are the most life-changing words. It's painful. It takes a lot of patience to work through passages like this to really see fruit being born. The truth will set us free when we become captives of the truth. The truth will set us free when we become servants of the Word of God and really submit ourselves to it. I have a master's in divinity. Yes, I do. Yeah, master's in divinity. That. How do you like that? But what does that mean? That does not mean that I have mastered the Word of God or that I stand in mastery over it. It means that I've been mastered by it or I'm on the way to being mastered by it. It's a degree any of us can have. Are you mastered by the Word of God? Are you mastered by the truth? Have you said, I submit, I yield, I want to be captive to your truth, Jesus, even when it's hard? This is a hard text. This text has been abused. This text has been misunderstood. Think about it. Jesus tells the Jewish brothers and sisters, you're not really children of Abraham, we'll see later. He says, you're actually children of the devil. That's embarrassing in our age. Is this anti-Semitic? Is this an anti-Jewish text? Some people have understood it that way, and they've banned this text for all practical purposes. They have torn this out of the pages of the Bible. John chapter 8, for them, is only worth censoring. Jesus has been censored. They've muzzled God. They've, they've gagged God and said, this is no valid truth for our society and for our age, for our generation. We have to ask, in this hard text, are we willing to take the time and submit to its truth and learn that actually there's really new, deep life in this teaching. Think about four things from this text. First of all, Jesus speaking to the Jews is a Jew. And all his 12 disciples and John, the writer of the Gospel, they're all Jewish. How can it be anti-Semitic if it's Jesus and the Jewish people having like an, a family discussion, a family feud, you could say? All right. Secondly, Jesus speaks these words to many who believe in him. 31. 
Verse 30 says, many believed in his name. Well, we see very quickly that many also were fickle in their faith and critical, and they wanted to kill him. That's the message of John 8. Jesus recognizes it. He points out, you're trying to kill me. How's that anti-Semitic? I'm a Jew. That's anti-Semitic. You're trying to kill me. I'm trying to bless you and give you life. I'm trying to point out some obvious flaws that if you look in the mirror and find some answers, you can change and you can have joy and life in me. Thirdly, if Jesus said these harsh words to his brothers and sisters, his own Jewish kin, then how much more would these words apply to you and me who are non-Jewish? Okay, we have one Jewish brother, first one ever to join the church today. Hello, that is a beautiful thing. Often I've said for 15 years as I preach, like, well, we're all Gentiles here, so we'll have to just, you know, imagine what that was like or get into the mindset. But here we are. We are a family, Jewish and Gentile. And how much more should I and you apply these words to us? If the, if the chosen people of God were called not true children of Abraham spiritually because of their deeds and their actions, then how much more should we take stock about our own selves and enter this text, not judging it and saying, this is anti-Semitic or this is whatever. Let it judge and examine us. Because the fourth point is, that it's, it's the fruit that shows the true heart or character of a person. That's what Jesus will teach us. We'll see in a minute. It's the fruit. It's your words. It's your works, which either expose you as being a phony or justify you for being genuine. And so I want to enter this story. I want this story to influence me. I want it to examine my fruit. I want it to expose my actions. And I want it to then show me Jesus so I can get another taste not just of my rotten, bitter fruit that I, I produce, but I want to get a taste of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I'm rejoicing that this hard word is a life-changing word. The fifth thing that I rejoice in this morning is that we're celebrating because we've seen in our church even hypocrites repent and be restored. And this is a tough one. It's hard to get a hypocrite to repent of their self-righteousness. Church folk, you think... Church folk often think that their feet don't stink. Did you know that? Take their shoes off because they're on holy ground, and they think, now my, my feet don't stink. I am holy, I'm righteous. And we see this in verse 37, when Jesus says to the Jewish people, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. I mean, you are church-going people. You're, you're in the system. Yet, you still seek to kill me, because my words find no place in you. Okay, you are the strongest believer we could find. You are the religious elite. You are the Pharisees making up new laws on top of the laws that God gave you just because you're so holy. But we have a problem. You're so religious and so holy that you're actually trying to kill the Son of God. See a little hypocrisy there? A little hypocrisy there? You guys with me? Do you see the problem? Hypocrites have a hard time admitting that after all the righteous things they've done, after all the spiritual religious things they've done, there's still a problem in their hearts. They don't love God as they ought. They still want to be at the center of the universe. And they'll tell God where he can go. Pharisees and scribes, earlier in this chapter, caught a woman in adultery. They drag her before Jesus and say, the law says we need to stone her because she was an adulteress. Jesus says, let him who is without sin throw that stone first. Exposing their self-righteousness, they all walked away empty-handed. Self-righteousness. What does Jesus say to self-righteous people who think they've got it all figured out? He says, woe to you. Woe, it's going to be really terrible for you. He says, terrible things come for those who think that their righteousness is, is their own. Pride is the anti-God. Pride is the anti-Christ living inside of each of us. That we think that we should have the first and last word. That's pride. We don't want to submit to God's word or listen to other people's advice or counsel. That's pride. 
the most religious people in Jesus' day were insulting him here with racial slurs and other things even worse. Christians, religious people, can be some of the most arrogant and rude people. Right? I mean, come on. We're among friends here, right? We can admit. We've seen some pretty bad things in the church, haven't we? We've done some pretty bad things ourselves. But I've seen church folk also humble themselves by the example of Christ, who, who, though he was in the very form of God, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I've seen people learn the humility that Christ has taught us and that Christ works in us by his Holy Spirit. And I've seen people apologizing, repenting, and learning to really love with patience instead of just carrying around their pride. I've seen people crucifying their pride, making room in their hearts for a bigger picture a restoration is happening, and I've seen it, and I rejoice in it for 15 years. That I've seen hypocrisy being trumped by humility in our midst. Now, the sixth thing I rejoice in is that we have these dead, dull senses that Jesus describes in this text, which he is healing and he is now using so that we might listen to his word and love him with, with true feeling and desire. Okay, we have these dead, dull senses, like our hearing is deaf, he says, and our eyes are blind, but he's healing us so that we might learn from him and love him. What does Jesus say in verses 43 and following? Well, I'm going to have to read that section for you. Let's stand again. We're going to read for verses 39 through 47. The Jews answered Jesus, Abraham is our father, and Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. You you hear what's going on here? They're calling Jesus a bastard child. Oh yeah, we know you were born of a mother that wasn't married. We know about you. We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, he would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And why don't you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You can't stand to hear his word. You are, the, okay, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth. Did you hear that? Not although I tell you the truth. But because I tell you the truth, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of of you convicts me of sin, Jesus says? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You may be seated. Brian, would you give a quick announcement to those that are out there that if they want to hear the sermon, they could come on in? 15 years is worth celebrating. I put a lot of time into these 15 points. I'm only halfway through. I want everybody to hear them. Okay, here we go. Let's keep moving. Number six. We rejoice because our dull senses have been healed through Christ. He says, because I told you the truth, you didn't believe. What is that about? That means something's broken on their antenna. Remember what antennae are? Those old things we used to have on our TVs or radios? You know, the antenna is broken. The receptor is broken. It's malfunctioning. Something's wrong with the heart. They have an allergy to the truth. You prick their heart with a little truth and it just swells up. They can't stand it. Because I speak the truth, you don't want anything to do with me. You can't bear to listen to me. John 8 is bad news. 
We can't hear. We can't come. We don't want to. We're not free. We're slaves. But don't you remember John 6 from a few weeks ago? The good news? That even no one, no one can come to the Father through... I'm sorry, no one can come to the Father, Jesus said, unless this person is drawn. Unless I draw them and the Father draws them, you're not coming. You're going to be dead and deaf and blind. But the good news is, I am drawing people to myself. And that's really good because then it means you're not operating on your own human strength and saying, well, I decided to believe and I cleaned myself up and now I'm in this for real. Because what happens if you stumble and fall? It's very shaky. It's very fragile. But if it's God who draws you, if it's God who opens your deaf ears, if it's God who raises the dead, if it's God who brings you to completion in this, then it's very solid. It's worth rejoicing in. Anybody here hard of hearing? Anybody here hard of hearing, I said? Okay, I think that's a no. All right, so if you needed ear surgery, would you go to the cardiologist? No. That's the heart doctor. Well, that's exactly what Jesus says he's doing. He says, I'm first making you willing to believe so that you might hear. That's what he says. Listen to verse 43 again. You don't understand because you can't bear to hear my word. It's a, it's a problem of the will, problem of the heart that's making you deaf. He says, because I'm speaking truth, you're running away with your ears plugged. This is a heart problem. The Holy Spirit does something really roundabout. He goes through our heart, and he, I don't know what kind of scope he uses to get back up to the ears, but he goes through our heart, and he does ear surgery on us. Kind of weird, right? But that's what he does. That's what's necessary. A miracle has to happen. And praise God that he opens our ears and opens our hearts to believe. That is worth rejoicing in. Amen? Anybody else want to say amen? All right. 15 years, guys. I'm excited. I hope that you can get excited with me. Because we're only on number seven. We're halfway through. Here we go. It gets faster. Trust me. It starts speeding up. We rejoice that we have defected from darkness and been adopted as children of the light. Verse 44 and 47. You are of your father the devil. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you don't hear the words of God is because you're not of God. What I'm hearing is truth has sides. You have to belong in order to believe. If you're of the devil, you can't hear. You don't want to. If you're of God, though, you will hear my word. It will make sense, and you will want to follow it. Truth takes sides. Belonging is a part of believing. Believers are adopted in. They're truly set free. They're really children of the king. They really have a home with God. We have defected if we are true believers. We've defected like a North Korean prisoner running from the tyranny of this state into China or another country for freedom, for liberation. We are like a young gang member on the streets of Chicago who says, this gang has been the only family I know, but maybe now I've been introduced to a church that loves me, and I have to make a choice. Do I want to keep doing this or do I want to do that? And it's a painful decision. But truth has sides. You have to choose. You have to move from one to the other. And we have defected. Some of you, some of our students and our members, even some of you here today, have, have had to turn away from family who didn't believe in Christ, and you have to say, I choose Christ. I want to be baptized, even if your family rejected you for that. Many people over the years that have had to make a choice, and it's been excruciating, they've said, I had to choose Christ and leave the old life behind. And this is what Jesus says happens to all of us. And it, it's a powerful deterrent for me to think about truth having sides when I struggle with sin. Some years ago, I was really struggling. 
with a sin. I just couldn't muster enough willpower to stop or Bible verses that I memorized and enough accountability and enough prayer. And so one day, though, I realized a very powerful tool in my arsenal against sin was that I am actually on the Lord's side. I actually belong to God. And to go back to sin is crossing enemy lines and betraying my Savior. When I realized how powerful that this battle is, and that if I simply say, well, sure, I'll give in to sin again, then I'm crossing enemy lines and I'm working for the enemy. I'm fighting against the battle that God has waged for me on the cross. I'm discounting that. I'm ignoring that. And so we must belong. We must be on the side of the truth and on the side of Christ. And if we will, we will have freedom. He promises that. He, he, he shows us in tangible ways through living hopes of history how this works. Point number eight, I rejoice in this. I rejoice in the freedom of holiness. Verse 46, Jesus throws it out there to his crowd. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? He says, I haven't done anything wrong, and nobody can prove me otherwise. And I'm speaking the truth. Can you say anything to discredit the truth that I'm speaking? No, he was a perfect man. He had a perfectly clean conscience. He was able to say like none of us could, can any of you convict me of sin or any wrongdoing? They could not. And so in this we see the beauty of holiness. We see the beauty of perfection. We see the beauty of holiness in the face of Jesus Christ a holy, perfect man who had a completely clean conscience, a spotless record, and he came to give us holiness so that we might experience the type of joy that he had. Can you imagine if you had a conscience that never bothered you, that you never had a sin or shameful thought to think about that would come back and haunt you? Imagine how free your life would be if when someone stepped on a twig behind you in the woods, you wouldn't turn around and snap and say, are they going to find out what I did? I can actually be vulnerable and real with people because God has forgiven me of my sins. I can talk about my past. Can you imagine if you never had a past? That's Jesus. That's beautiful. That's clean. And he says, you can be holy like me. You can experience that sort of joy that I have. Psalm 119, verse 32 says, O Lord, enlarge my heart. Enlarge my heart. Give me freedom, God. Give me a big heart and a big power. Why? So that I might run in the path of what? Your commandments. Give me freedom, not so I can sin or do whatever I want. Give me freedom and power so I can run fast and furious in the path of your commandments. In holiness, I would be so happy if I'm holy. Now we think of freedom often as the opposite of holiness. We think, well, freedom is doing whatever I want, not committing myself and setting my life apart for God's purpose, which is holiness. We think freedom is do whatever you want to do. Okay? True freedom is not doing whatever I want to do, but doing what is right and wanting to do what is right. Do you catch that? Freedom is not just doing what's right, it's wanting to do what's right. Let me give you an illustration that I stole from someone else. I've tweaked it a little bit here. Freedom has three components. There's a desire, there's a doability, or you could say ability, but it's, it's a doability. You can do something with this desire, and then there's a destiny of where this ability takes you to, okay? Three components. Imagine if you were going to skydive. You've taken the classes, you had your parachute, and on the way to the airport, you're driving your car along, and your car runs out of gas, and you miss your appointment. You have the ability, you even have the desire, but you couldn't quite get there, because something broke down along the way. What if, on another, another hand, you had um, 
Your, your car was full of gas, you drive to the airport, you got your pack on, you get up in the plane, it takes off, it's in the air, and then you chicken out. You've had the classes, you know the training, but you don't have the desire to do it anymore. So there's no freedom there, is there? What if you get in the car, you drive to the airport, you pack it on, you get up in the plane, you're ready to go gung-ho, and you jump out, and then you pull the cord and nothing happens? You got the desire, you got the ability, but you don't have the right destiny because you're going to smack the concrete 200 miles per hour, and that's if you're like flat to the earth, going that slow, and it's kind of ruined. You don't have any freedom anymore because you're dead. So see, you have to have all three components. You have to have the desire, you have to have the ability, and you have to have the, the destiny that carries through your purpose and your interest and your joy and your life. The problem is we often think, I'm free to do whatever I want, and we might even have the ability to do it, but where does it lead us? Does it lead us into freedom or shame and destruction and pain and problems? That's, that's not true freedom then. I'm rejoicing with you today, I hope, that God is giving us desires to do what is good. He's giving us ability to do what is good, and he's promising eternal good for us if we would just abide in his word. Amen? Number nine. Verses 48 to 54, stand up. We're almost finished. The Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? <laughs> Samaritan. We hate Samaritans, the Jews would have said. And, we ha and you have a demon? They're telling Jesus he has a demon. They're telling the Son of God that he's demon-possessed. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I seek not my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's talking about his father, of course. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Ah, see, it proves it. Abraham died, as did the prophet. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He's our God. You may be seated. This is where I rejoice, that we, being from many worlds, are one family by Christ's redeeming grace. This is our church motto, by the way. From many worlds, we are redeemed by Christ's grace to be one family. Now, the Jews told Jesus, trying to insult him, you are a Samaritan. Take that. Mixed breed. You know, Totally screwed up religion, they would have said. How can, you be a, how can you say things? You must be not a true Jew. I mean, we know that you were born of a woman out of wedlock, so who's your daddy? Huh? Who's your daddy? Are we going to get on Maury Povich and try to find out? I, we're just going to blame you and throw out accusations. We don't know what we're talking about, but you can't be who you say you are. Now, we have been adopted into one family, we believe, and we can no longer exalt ourselves over each other with ethnic markers or cultural cues or any sort of distinctions at the expense of the other person. We can't do that. We can appreciate the differences, and we should. We shouldn't say, hey, I'm colorblind. I don't see differences. I don't see color. I don't taste the differences between Chinese food, Korean food, or Italian. I don't. I mean, I'm just colorblind. I have no palate. I have no senses on my tongue. I don't see things. I don't hear things different. When you're speaking in another language, I don't hear it because I just love everybody. That's not true. You love everybody. Appreciate the differences. Get to know them. Learn from them. We don't demonize each other, of course. We don't dehumanize each other, of course. We don't vilify each other or judge each other or put each other down. But there are differences. Let's begin celebrating and enjoying those because we are in one family by Christ's grace. 
We can learn from each other. Ephesians 2 says that we who are so far apart from each other, Jew and Gentile, and you name any other cultural group that's at odds with each other, we have been brought near each other, and we've been brought near to God. We've been reconciled by the death of Christ. And now we are no longer two people, but we are one people. We are one man, literally. And we are one family, and we are one body, and we are one temple rising up to the Lord for His glory. That's who we are. No longer separated. I love what Zion said. This church embodies, and it's been doing that for 15 years, the grace of Christ in uniting people who are so different. And then the tenth thing that I rejoice in, we have been approved by God, and we have been uh, recipients of His glory. And so we have no longer the need to beg for and work for and be slaves to other people's opinions. If you have God's approval and God's glory, you don't need to be a slave to someone else's opinions about you. Galatians 1, Paul says, For I'm now seeking the approval, am I now seeking the approval of God or of man? He has to make a choice. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 10. If I were still trying to please people as a slave, what do you think? What do you want me to do? Then I would no longer be a servant of Christ, who truly is Lord. Jesus says in John chapter 8, Verses 15 and 54, this. I don't seek my own glory, but my Father does. Verse 54, if I glorify myself, it's nothing. It's my Father who does it for me. If Jesus himself couldn't glorify himself or chose not to, how much less should we be seeking to glorify ourselves and boast over other people? And how much more should we be humble in saying, God, you've approved of me. I don't need to worry about other people or fear them. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus tasted death for all of us so that he might destroy the power of the one who has the power of death. And he might destroy the fear that we all have for all of our lives that we're going to die. Jesus came to die so that we wouldn't be afraid of death and that we wouldn't be under the power of someone else's accusations, whether it's the devil or another person. When I was preaching the funeral memorial service for little Jashawn Bussell, the five-year-old that died on May the 1st. We were here in the memorial service. I'm preaching my funeral message, and one of the family members stood up and said, this is a lie. And, and she cursed multiple times and said, this is a lie. The resurrection hope that you're preaching is a lie. And we, we kind of came around her and asked her to sit down, and it happened again a few minutes later in the service. Is it a lie? What we believe? Is it a lie? The thing that I rejoice in, in this next point, is that we are free from the power of sin and death and fear. Jesus said in verse 51, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's hard to believe when you're sitting at a funeral. It's hard to believe that you'll never see death when people are dying all around you in the city of Chicago and in the world. When dozens of people are dying in fires in California or in mass shootings, in our nation, or in wars around the world. People are dying of hunger and all sorts of natural disasters. It's hard to say, well, how are we never going to taste death when we taste it every day? Paul said, we die every day in these bodies. The apostle who said that. So how are we supposed to take Jesus' word that we'll never see death or taste death? We have to remember what Hebrews 2 says. He tasted death for us so that we won't fear death and let it enslave us. We are free from the power of death. We have hope. We are not as those in the world who have no hope. We are courageous in the face of death. 
We can say at a funeral, there is a resurrection from the dead, and we believe that Christ is powerful to raise us in that day. Because we hold to Jesus' words, we abide in his words, and we believe that he has the words of eternal life, we will live too. Twelve, I rejoice that the unity of the Bible can be read and we can receive all the treasures that Christ has for us. Let's stand one more time as we finalize this sermon with these last few verses. Verses 56 to 59. Your, Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus said. How's it going for you, Jews? Are you rejoicing to see my day? He saw it and was glad, the father of the Jews. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. He's probably about 30-something at the time. And you have seen Abraham? Are you crazy? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You may be seated. I'm rejoicing that when I think about Abraham looking forward to the day of Christ, he rejoiced. I can rejoice too because I'm reading the same stories about Abraham and all the prophets and all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament. The whole Bible is a unified testimony to the greatness of Jesus. Abraham rejoiced in seeing the day of the Messiah coming. We're rejoicing to look back on those stories and back on those Bible texts, and no matter how hard they are, we can find our way out of the woods of biblical study by looking to Jesus. He's our compass. He's our north star. He is the one leading us home when we're lost. And so I rejoice that Abraham looked forward in faith to Jesus somehow. Maybe it was in Genesis 12 when he, when he was given the promise. Abraham, you'll be a blessing to the nations, and through you I'll bless all the families of the earth. Galatians tells us that happened through Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the true descendant of Abraham. He is the true Israelite, and in Jesus, we've all been blessed. Maybe it was Abraham on that fateful day Genesis 22 describes of taking his son Isaac up the mountain, his only son, and he brought him up to the mountain, and God said, you must sacrifice your son in obedience to me. And so what did he do? He bound him with rope, he put him on the altar, he put him on the wood, and he raised the knife, and he was about to... Plunge it through his son's chest when the angel says, No, Abraham, look, the, the Lord has provided a substitute, a ram, sacrifice the animal instead. Maybe Abraham's looking forward to this and seeing a very clear picture of a substitute who would come and save his people. A, a substitute who would give his life as a ransom for many, who would lay his life down as the Lamb of God. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. When I read the Bible, when you read it, we can rejoice because it points us to Christ on every page. The 13th reason I rejoice is because Jesus is so majestic. He is the I Am. He is the eternal God, the I Am. In verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, he doesn't say, I was too. He says, I am. That means I am eternal. I am God. I am who I am. I am the Lord who was and is and is to come. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am, Jesus said to them. Who are you? Before you were born, before your great-granddaddy was born, before Abraham, the father of the Jews, was born, I am. We can rejoice in that because we have such a, a nearsightedness in our world. We see what we see. We see what's in front of our faces. We see what's happening today. And we are bound and stuck in the moment and in the momentary suffering that we experience. That's all we can sometimes see or bear is what's happening now. I heard now. I want to get out of this now. But God gives us a bigger view. He says, I am the I am. I am eternal. I'm showing you a 10,000 foot view and even beyond that, I'm showing you an eternal view of the world and my purposes on it. Science is always revising its plan. The last year's theory is being updated now. 
Culture is so confused, it's plunging ahead with things like the sexual revolution and all sorts of other ethical questions. Your own love life, you know, romance might blossom one day and wither the next. Things change. There's the Super Bowl one day and everyone's at the top of the world wearing the ring and then the next morning they say, well, now what? What trends today is forgotten tomorrow. I mean, this is our world. Jesus says, I stand above it and outside of it. I am who I am and I'm giving you truth. If you find your home in it, you'll be free from being bound in the moment, in the suffering of the moment. Fourteen, I rejoice in the true seed of Abraham, who is a substitute for our sins. Think about the story of Isaac and, uh, Abraham and Isaac again. Isaac binding his son on the altar to sacrifice him. Isaac escaped death that day because God provided. This day, in, in John 8, verse 59, they were trying to stone Jesus and kill him. This was not his day to die. Jesus is the ultimate escape artist. I mean, we say, holy Houdini, Jesus embodies that phrase. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly withdrawing, escaping, hiding himself. How does he do it? I don't know exactly how. How he hid himself. But he escapes being stoned on this day. It wasn't his time. But then he turned his face like stone towards Jerusalem, and he committed himself to die at the hands of the same stone-hearted sinners who stood here with stones in their hands trying to kill him on this day. Jesus escaped. Imagine the glory cloud of God. The presence of the Lord descending upon the Jewish temple in the days of the prophets, you know, described in Ezekiel and in the days of the people being led in the wilderness. The cloud of glory led the people and settled and dwelt with the people. Jesus is the cloud of God. He's the glory of God. He is God in human flesh. And when he withdrew from the temple that day, the glory of God left the building. But it wasn't the temple that was the place of glory. It was Jesus John 2 says Jesus' body was the temple. And he would lay his life down and his body would be destroyed. And he says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. We know what that's talking about. Jesus says, in my death and in my resurrection, you'll have glory. You'll have joy. He says, I will choose to lay my life down when I choose. You can't stone me today, but I will walk right into it tomorrow on purpose so that I can save you from your sins. It's Veterans Day today. I'm a chaplain, so I, you know, I got a call at 2 a.m. last night from a soldier. I'm now responsible for 1,300 soldiers, and I'm the only chaplain over them. Help! Pray for me! What have I done? I don't know. This is crazy. Last night, today's Veterans Day. There are so many wounds and so many scars that these people are bearing because they've fought wars that may be just, may be unjust. They've paid the price of their own blood, their own families. You know, you'll hear the phrase, freedom isn't free. If that's true for earthly wars and earthly battles, how much more for the spiritual war that Jesus fought for us, the righteous one who fought the only noble war ever fought sinlessly, and he laid his life on freedom isn't free because he purchased our freedom with his own blood. His blood sets us free. And the last point, can you rejoice with me? That this is the last point of the sermon today, number 15. Here we go. We eagerly await when the shadows flee and Christ, our hope, our living hope, returns. That's one of our statements in our vision statement. We eagerly await when the, the shadows of life, the sin and the darkness will flee and Christ, our living hope, returns in all his glory. Amen? Amen. We will soon enter the Advent season when we celebrate when Christ came to the earth as a, as a baby. God came to the earth. And we're going to also celebrate his second Advent at the same time when he comes back again to judge and to save the world. But is your hope in him today? 
Is your joy in Him today? Have you seen today that you need Him? Have you seen that you're a slave to your own sin? Have you seen that He comes to set you free if you simply put your trust in His Word? Put your trust in Him. He's come to save you. Romans 8 says, The whole creation awaits with eager longing. So the whole world is watching and waiting for us to make a decision now and to do what's right. The whole world is watching with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The world can't wait to see this story end with God's children being revealed in all their glory and perfection, the way it was supposed to be. The way it's not right now, but the way it will be one day. The creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. This aching world can't wait to be set free from its own corruption that we caused it and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The world can't wait. Today is the day. It's been 15 years. I can't wait for God to do more miracles in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. I pray today that we would taste the freedom, that we would take the freedom, that we would walk in the freedom today. Let me just close by quoting Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Of course, he's speaking to his black brothers and sisters in their fight for civil rights. He said, I have no despair about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here as slaves, of course. Before the pen of Jefferson etched the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. These are beautiful words. If I could just transpose them into a slightly higher key for the fight that Christ has earned us, it might sound something like this. After 15 years, I have no despair about the outcome of our struggle at Living Hope Church. We will reach the goal of freedom in Chicago and all over the world because the goal of God is freedom. Disappointed and weary, we may be at times. Our destiny is tied up with the destiny of Jesus. Before the Democrats or the Republicans, Jesus was here, the I Am. Before YouTube or Facebook or Amazon Prime, before Wall Street or the Illinois Lottery or the bankruptcy, Jesus was here. Before heroin or the opioid crisis or ISIS or mass shootings or wildfires, before you Chicago existed or the Obama Presidential Center was a thought, Jesus was here. Jesus says in John 8, I'm here. Freedom is here. Come and abide in my word. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and you'll be free indeed. Amen? Let's stand. If you're helping serve communion, come on forward. Musicians, come on forward as we pray.